Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. Thank you, Hannah. Great job this morning. It's fun, isn't it? I love the fact I walked in this morning into the school hall and it said this. There was a warning sign. This performance contains strobe lighting, smoke, haze and pyrotechnic effects. Did anyone see that sign? Maybe you did and thought, great, church is on. That was from the school presentation this week. Um, just say it's great we've got our, our uh, bookshop outside. Please do. Uh, f- there's some great books out there. And do make use of, avail yourself, I think is the, you know, the posh term. Make, uh, avail yourself of books, but do pay for them. It's always better that way. Uh, support the local bookshop, Oasis, but also invest in yourself and who you are. If you're a follower of Christ, don't stop learning. There's already stuff out there. I've been blown away this week by a book, Dirty Glory by uh, Pete Gregg. Definitely on my recommended reading list. There's other ones we'll start dripping out and putting out there on the stand. So do have a look after the meeting and find some stuff to invest in your lives. Good. Teaching today, we're starting a new series. It's, I, I love all of the stuff that we do. I always get excited by the next thing. I'm, I'm one of these people that loves the future. You know, there's really annoying people. I'm one of those people. I love talking about what we're going to do. It's going to be amazing. And I'm looking forward to this teaching program called Band of Brothers, which I'll explain about in a moment. But a number of years ago, I, um, I was in the fire service. Some of you know I've told some stories about some of the things we got up to in the fire service. I was in West Sussex Fire Brigade. I was um, part of Littlehampton Fire Crew. And I remember when I joined, I, I remember I would sit there with all these, you know, sort of gnarly, older members of the crew. And they would all tell their stories. And if you know anyone in the emergency services, if you're in health or if you're in, you know, if you're in the police service or if you're in the fire service, everyone's got stories. Most of them aren't true. Most of them are heavily embellished and often quite graphic. And they would tell these stories. And I would sit there in the room with these men. Late at night, we'd be in between a fire call telling our stories. And I'd be the new boy, the sprog, the probationer. And I would listen and I would just not feel part of the story. I would be trying to understand what they were talking about, why they were even there, what happened. And the rest of the people would be laughing. Do you remember when you did this? Remember when this happened? And I remember thinking, like, I'm not part of this community. But over the next next few months and even years, what happened was their story became my story. That when they would tell their stories of what happened on the last call they went on, I'd say, ah, I was there. I remember what happened. And we'd have these shared experiences as I became part of that community. Because that's what happens when we start belonging to a group of people. Today I want to talk about being part of a band of brothers, looking at the adventures of Jesus through the eyes of his disciples. And each week, we're going to pull out two or three of the disciples, some well-known, some lesser-known, to see what we can learn from them. So I want to read to you, first of all, just a couple of pieces from the Bible about the part where Jesus called his disciples. Now, today I want to talk to you about Simon Peter and about Andrew. And they were the first two people that Jesus called. But in each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's slightly different versions of how they were called. So we won't get into deep theology, but maybe in your connect groups this week, you can ask the question, why do the four writers have four different methods of explaining the calling on their lives? But let's look at Luke chapter 5, first of all. And I think this will be on your screen. Um, Jesus calling Simon Peter. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, He was there. The great crowds pressed on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats on the water's edge, for the fishermen left them and were washing their nets. 
Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowd from there. Now, maybe that's normal 2,000 years ago. I think if I sat at the front of church in a boat, you might be a little bit like, what's going on here? But Jesus pulled back from the shore because people were pushing in on him, and he started to speak. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, um, also known as Peter, now go out where it is deeper, let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing, but if you say so, I'll let, na- de- let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. Listen, when Jesus does a miracle, he does it really well, doesn't he? He could have just kind of pulled out a few fish to show, see, Peter, we can do this. But no, he's got two boats on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. You see, the whole point of this teaching is let's get behind the reality of what was going on. Sometimes when we tell Bible stories, like telling Sunday school stories and children's stories, we tell these kind of nicely, kind of almost tidied up version of what really happened. Listen, Andrew and his brother Simon, Peter, were the sons of a fisherman. Their job was to catch fish. They left the dad's business and they followed Jesus. What was going on there? Why would they do that? Then if you look at the version that John shows as well, I haven't got the words on the screen for this, but in John's version, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him intently and said, you are Simon, Son of John, you'll be called Cephas, which when translated means Peter. And then in Matthew 8 and Mark 1, the more well-known versions is simply this. Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee. He was just minding his own business. And he sees Peter and Andrew by the side of the Sea of Galilee. He says, come, follow me. And they drop their nets and they go straight and say, yeah, we're with you. We'll follow you. Talk about adventure. If someone came to see you and said, grab your passport, we're going for a trip tomorrow, who would go, yeah, I'm, I'm there? It's not, it's like, wow, these guys, what were they doing? You see, the thing is, and I always find this fascinating when we try and preach within a Western context, is we don't fully understand what's happening at that moment. You see, the phrase, come follow me, is a really powerful phrase. A Jewish boy would understand what is going on, but us Westerners, we don't quite understand what's happening here. This is a really powerful phrase. You see, every Jewish boy at the age of about six would start their education. Sorry, ladies, you weren't included, but the boys were invited to come to the local synagogue. At the age of six, they were trained to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Not memorize the names of the books of the Bible, which I've just done, they spent four years learning every single word of the Torah, the first five books. Anyone fancy that as a challenge? Talk about memory verses. This is like a memory book. 
They learned the first five books. At the age of 10, if they were successful in learning the first five books of the Bible, then they would be put on the second stage of the education to learn the first 39 books of the Bible. Genesis all through to Malachi. Every single word. But if you didn't make it, you were sent home back to the family business. You were told, it's great, thanks for trying to learn the first five books. Didn't quite make it. A bit like X Factor, you know, button. Britain's got talent, but Jesus is there pressing the button. Sorry, the rabbi's pressing the button. They get sent home back to the family business. Whether it's fishing in this case, making sandals, or the vineyard. Whatever you're doing, you go back to the family business. You've been deselected. You've not made it through to... Hollywood or wherever it is. And so they go to the second section and then when they make, um, they finish the 39 books of the Bible and they're about 14, 15 years old at this point. And they've spent the last five years learning not just the Bible itself, the first 39 books, the Old Testament. They've also learned what other people say about the Bible. They're learning what the theologians, the, fa- the, the priests of the day, they're saying about the Bible, but all through memory. There's little written down. The printing press hasn't been invented for another 1,400 years. And they are having to memorize all of this. At the end of 14, 15 years old, they will then decide if they're successful to go and seek out a rabbi, a teacher, who they would like to follow, who they would like to become a disciple of. And they will go and they will see this rabbi, their preferred choice, and they say, I'd like to become your disciple. And the rabbi will interrogate them. And he will say, tell me about your understanding of Scripture. Explain to you what these words mean. What does this verse mean to you? And after the interrogation, the rabbi would either say to them, that's great, but you're not for me. You need to go back to your family home and continue with your father's business. Or the the rabbi would say to them, you've been successful. Come, follow me. And that boy, that 15-year-old boy, would then choose to follow. And literally, they would talk about in the dust of the rabbi. They would be as close as they possibly could, so the dust is kicked up all over them. They'd be in the shadow. They wouldn't just be learning from the rabbi. They would be looking at everything the rabbi did. That's what they were hoping to do. So when Jesus walks on the Sea of Galilee and sees Peter and Andrew on the side of the, the sea there, and he says to them the words, come, follow me, suddenly they're going, wow. I'm no longer deselected. I'm no longer the last child on the school playground who doesn't get picked for the team. What Jesus is saying with those three words is saying, you're in. You're acceptable. You're valuable. You have purpose. You can come and you can be part of my discipleship group. Come and follow me. Come and walk in my footsteps. Follow everything I do. To a Jewish boy, these were powerful words. Every single moment when Jesus says these words, come, follow me, no one gets deselected in following Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? And that's still true today. Jesus says to each one of us today, come, follow me. Regardless of your story, your background, your dreams, we talk about this at Freedom Church. We say everyone is welcome because that's the Jesus message. He doesn't say, well, if you can memorize the first five books, you're in. If you can pay a certain tithe to the local church, you're in. If you're good to people in your neighborhood, you're in. He says, you're welcome. Come, follow me. Come, walk with me. You see, the thing about this band of brothers is everyone has this desire in our society today, this sense of wanting to belong. We want to belong. We want to be part of what's going on. We want to be part of a group, part of a a family, part of a community. It's one of our primary uh, desires as a human being. I wonder if you have a close friendship group. I wonder if you have people you call close friends. I'm not talking about Facebook friends. I'm talking about real friends. 
people you actually want to do, spend time with. You know, maybe you remember a time when you were a child, you were in a gang, a group, a bunch of people that did stuff together. Would you be like, always like to be part of something bigger than yourself? To be known not for what you do in a work setting, but for who you are as a person. The people love you for who you are. Do you ever do that terrible thing when you look on Facebook and wish you could have the life someone else seems to be having? With all the friends they seem to be hanging out with and their life seems perfect and it all works absolutely brilliantly every time. Those sort of friends are probably just selecting the bits they want you to hear and see, I suggest. But these disciples, these followers of Jesus, bands of brothers, they were desperate to belong to be part of something just like you and I. We want to find out more about them, about what made them tick, why they followed Jesus the way they did, why they formed this group, this association, this bunch, this, I looked it up, there's every word you can imagine, cluster, circle, clique, clan, faction, gang, group, herd, horde, posse. Reminds me of Steve Wright in the afternoon. Troop, team, tribe, but we're going to call them a band of brothers because some of them were brothers, literally, um, as these two were today, Simon Peter and Andrew. So a little bit of a profile for you. I've, I've created some top trump cards. If you were of a certain age, you might remember top trumps. You'd be there in the playground. You could actually match and see who's got the best card, the best car, the best uh, person, whatever it might be, sports personality. Well, I've got some top trumps of disciples. Are you ready? Here we go. The first one, please, Levi. Peter. He gets mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. Having a book named after yourself definitely helps. Okay, so that, that was a bonus point for him. He appears 300 times. I've put down his sword skills as 0%. Those who know the story know that Jesus, when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, Peter decides to do something about it. He grabs a sword and he pulls it out and he chops an ear off a servant. Uh, not a good swordsman. I mean, I should have given him 5%, I guess, because he hit the ear. He got something. I mean, but he, he's not really known for his sword skills. But I have put down there, walking on water, 50%. Because let's be fair to Peter, he did go some of the way. All right? He's, he, he maybe 100% walking on water, not quite, quite it nailed, but he got halfway through. Peter managed walking on water. But I also put down some of his jobs. He's a fisherman. He was an activist. You know, he, he said things very, very uh, rashly sometimes. He was the first to say something and probably the last to think about what he just said. And he was this busy, passionate, but often naive. He'd be the first person to say something and then maybe regret that he put his foot in his mouth. And, uh, you know, times where the transfiguration, he goes, oh, let's build a building for shelter for you all. Or Jesus comes and, and washes their feet. He said, oh, Jesus, you know, no, no, you can't wash my feet. And he stops him from doing things. He's always talking before he's thinking. Anyone got any friends like that? The one that looks in the mirror sometimes back at you? Jesus loved Peter. He was a very special disciple. And we're going to actually put a lot more time around Peter um, after Easter. We're going to do a series just on Peter, looking at the early church in the book of Acts called I Am Peter. Because there's so much more I'd love to us to discover about this disciple Peter. But his brother Andrew intrigues me. He's not well known. If we go to the next slide, he only appears 14 times in the Bible. His preaching skills are put at 0%. He never is seen to be preaching to thousands of people like his brother Peter. He never gets good gigs. He never gets to stand on the big platforms. He always has to watch his brother Peter, 3,000 people getting saved and baptized in one day. Listen, if you're a preacher, that's a good day. And Andrew's like, oh, there you go, Peter again, getting the good gigs. 
But the thing about Andrew is this. He's only there 14 times, but his ability to connect and network, and there is a bit of a pun, I suppose, there as a fisherman. He was a great networker. He connected people, as we'll see a bit later this morning. And I think, actually, he was probably a bit of an introvert, probably compensating for his brother Peter, a little bit extreme in his own way of speaking out loud at his first opportunity. Andrew was quieter. He appears 14 times in the Bible, 12 of those times, he's just on a list. He's just on a list. There's Peter with Andrew. There's a list of disciples. There's Andrew. He only gets mentioned twice as actually saying something. At one time, in fact, both times, he uses those words very carefully to introduce people to Jesus. So there is. I've also put, I think he loves food and family. Now, you might be, you're on dodgy theology ground, theological ground here, so you'd be right. But here's my theory. You ready for this? I don't know if we're recording this, but don't tell anyone. Here's my theory. So as soon as Peter and Andrew are picked up by Jesus, he says, come follow me. Do you know what the next thing they do is? The very next thing they do is they go to Simon's mother-in-law's house. Why? I think because they're hungry. The story, I think, goes like this. It doesn't appear in the Bible. My theory is this. Jesus says, it's great to meet you, Simon. It's great to meet you, Andrew. I'm hungry. Who is the best cook do you know? And they say, well, you know what? The best cook is my mother-in-law. She's amazing. But she's a bit ill right now. Jesus goes, that's all right. We can sort that one out if you can sort the food out. So they go around to mother-in-law's house. They get her out of her bed. And the next sentence after she gets made better, she makes them some food. You look how many times Jesus heals people and food follows straight afterwards. Jairus' daughter. You look how many times it happens. Like, I think they like their food. So all they wanted, Jesus, if you could sort out mother-in-law, all right, then we can get ourselves some nice fried fish. That would be great, wouldn't it? But I could be wrong. Don't quote me or tweet me about that one. Here we go. A couple of thoughts for you from the life of Andrew, specifically looking through his eyes today. Andrew the disciple. You know, when I was younger, a lot younger, I'm one of six children. Uh, We lived in the country, um, in East Anglia, in the Fens, and uh, we had no TV. Oh, Oh, hooray. I'm not sure what you're going for. And so we would always be outdoors. It would always be outside and finding things to do. My memories of my childhood are always the memories of moments with my brothers getting up to mischief normally. There were things where I remember my brother fell into a, a pile of stinging nettles in his, just in his pair of shorts. And I laughed and laughed and laughed. And then I took him home. He covered in spots. And he then also did the same for me a few weeks later when I fell into a river and he dragged me out and I'm ending up, you know, bedraggled. And those moments, you know, where we built, uh, we built a house out of hay bales in the farmer's field and he came chasing after us in his tractor and we were going off running off home. Those kind of moments, I tell you, my moments of, I, that I remember, my significant memories as a child were always shared moments. I want to suggest to you this morning that a shared adventure is always a better adventure. A shared adventure is a better adventure. You think about the, the things that you've enjoyed as a child and the stories you remember. Often it's when you were together with someone. Because Peter and Andrew are always together. They always come as a twosome. They always get mentioned in the same sentence because they were brothers. And they seem to have this connection. I think there's probably there was complimenting of each other that took place. For all of Peter's rash and you know, kind of foolish things he did and said, there was probably the quieter, wiser Andrew, the brother, gentle and thoughtful. A shared adventure is a better adventure. 
I asked last week for people to send through stuff that you'd um, felt God say to you about this idea of getting a building and a home for Freedom Church. And a few people have sent through some emails and some information. Thank you for doing that. And one of them really inspired me because they'd written it back last year, um, and they'd written it about being on an adventure. And it's from Dave Ritchie. And he wrote a whole uh, couple of sides of A4 with pictures. Thank you. You obviously know my intelligence level. I got sent pictures to go with the words and kept me engaged. But he wrote this about a mountain climbing, an adventure. And it said this, most mountain ridge climbs are a team affair. Maybe in pairs of climbers roped together a whole teams, but always encouraging other team members verbally or by their presence on the ridge or by their progress up it. Mountain ridges demand careful ascent. One slip and you need the safety rope. Along the other rope end of the rope is your climbing partner. If one team member falls, another may even have to jump off the opposite side of the ridge to prevent both of you falling down the mountain. That line blew me away. I thought, am I prepared to share an adventure of life with somebody that when something happens to them, I'm prepared to jump the other way? Do you understand? If you're on a ridge together and someone falls down one side, it's no good me trying to hold on to the ridge. I have to jump down the other side so that we're both safe. Would I be prepared to do something as risky as that for the sake of my partner, my friend, my colleague, my adventure companion? I thought it was a brilliant image, this idea of year of adventure. This concept that we need to be together if we want to have an adventure. You know, we cannot just go alone. Ecclesiastes 4 says, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Real trouble. If you watch that film, 127 Hours, you would agree with that statement. Ecclesiastes got there first. We need to be together. A shared adventure is a better adventure. Peter and Andrew were together. Secondly, it's not what you know, but who you know. Quick quiz for you. Hands up if you've ever heard of Albert McMakin. Oh, dear. Hands up if you've ever heard of Billy Graham. Good. That's encouraging. I might have gone a bit wrong at that point. Billy Graham is 98 years old now. He is still the person who's preached live to the most people ever. They reckon over 2 billion people have heard Billy Graham, either through radio or TV, live. They've heard him speak live. And he's seen millions of people saved through his ministry. Amazing. But the person that brought Billy Graham to Christ was Albert McMakin. How? Albert Macon was his friend, and there was a, an 11-week crusade taking place in their town. And Billy wanted to become a baseball player. He didn't want to get involved with church. He went regularly, but he wasn't interested in becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And Albert Macon said to him, I'll tell you what, if you come along to this crusade, I'll let you drive my truck. And he went, yep, if that's the case, I'm in. The, the story goes, he drove the truck to this event one evening. He was so taken with the gospel message that Mordecai Ham, the, the evangelist, preached that night that he went back every single night, took loads of notes and said, this is what I'm called to, to follow Jesus Christ for the rest of my life. He realized that attending church wasn't enough, that reading his Bible wasn't enough. He had to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And because of Albert McMakin, and there are many other stories where one person has brought someone else to Christ in that way, who's seen many things happen, in the same way that Albert connected Billy, Andrew was a connector. Andrew the disciple made connections between people and Jesus himself. 
He said to Peter in John's verse, he said, Peter, come and see the Messiah, also the Christ. Come and meet him. I've seen him. I've seen what he can do. Come and connect with Jesus. You know, sometimes, listen to this, sometimes we can't be that guy that stands on platforms and sees thousands of people saved. But we could be the one that points them to Jesus. That's what Andrew did. He takes his brother and he says, Simon Peter, check out this guy. He's amazing. And the only other time that Andrew speaks is the time of the feeding of the 5,000 where he brings a small boy to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I don't know what you can do, but this guy's got a packed lunch. That's all he ever did was connect people to Jesus that we read about. It's not what you know, it is who you know. Listen, the best thing you and I can ever do is point people to Jesus. The best thing we can ever do. We can tell our stories about church and how great things are. We can tell people all about our programs and activities. It's not about church. It's not about Christianity. It's all about him. It is all about Jesus. Our job here as followers of Jesus Christ is not just trying to be good followers of Jesus Christ. It's to point others to him. That's what we're there for, by our example, by our words, by our activities. The reason we run a cap debt advice center is not so we go, aren't we clever? We do it because we want to engage with people's lives, help them get out of debt so they're set free, and we point them to Jesus because he is the one that gives them ultimate freedom. That's what we're about. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We point people to Jesus. We don't point people to our church or even to our Alpha courses. We point people to him. That's the purpose of being a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not what we know. It's who we know. That's what's important. And we must connect people to him. This Easter time, I have the pleasure of hosting, believe it or not, I don't know how it even happened, but I'm hosting Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. I've got an hour's leadership program. I'm, I'm interviewing him, doing some Q&A with some leaders at Spring Harvest. And I'm, and I'm like properly like chuffed and also like, well, how did that happen? But you know what? Ultimately, even that is not, it doesn't matter that I'm going to have this opportunity to connect with somebody who I'm like, wow, this guy's amazing. I get to connect with the creator of the universe. Jesus Christ himself, and I get to point everyone back to him. And that's one of the things I love about the Archbishop, is that what he does. He will often say, it's all about Jesus. That's where we look. That's where we get our strength from. That's who we're interested in. We're not interested in just building up church. We're interested in building up our friendship and our relationship with Jesus Christ himself. Third point we can learn from Andrew today is this, and I think it's a lesson for all of us here in this room. We need to know when to speak knowing when to speak. Susan Cain wrote a book um, called Quiet, and she's an incredible TED Talk, a 20-minute talk online called The Power of Introverts. And she talks about how we label people in all kinds of ways, often as introverts and extroverts. And if you've ever done one of those sort of assessment programs, you'll have had that experience. And she, she talks about how the introverts seem to get the rough end of the deal. Now, if you're sitting here and you're an introvert, about a third of people tend to be, apparently, that you'll be, yes, amen, but saying it very, very quietly inside of yourself, won't you? But she's, she talks, and it's a great book, it's worth a read, she talks about how we need to really promote um, the values that introverted people bring, and the quieter people in our room are actually really important people. And she says a few quotes, I'll, th I'll just throw these at you. She says this, don't think of introversion as something that needs to be cured. It's good, isn't it? She's obviously a Christian, and she says this as well. She says, evangelicalism has taken the extrovert ideal to its logical extreme. If you don't love Jesus out loud, then it must not be real love. It's not enough to forge your own spiritual connection to the divine. It must be displayed publicly. 
I think sometimes even within church, we kind of encourage, even with the way we do church, with music and singing and hands raised and a bit of dancing. And the introverts in the room are going, really? You're going to make me do that? Jesus calls each one of us the way that we are. And the last quote I've got here, she says, there is zero correlation between being the best talker and having the best ideas. That's a warning to some of us in the room. Zero correlation. And I just want to, I just kind of, when I was reading and studying around Andrew, I thought, here's this quiet in the background, you know, rarely says things person. And yet when he does say things twice out of 14 appearances, they're really powerful interactions. The moment that we speak and the moment we choose to speak can be really powerful. People who talk all the time can actually start to zone people out. Can you ever had that experience? People just talk all the time. But the quiet people, when they say, can I just say something? We go, wow, I want to hear this. Someone who's thought it through, considered it carefully. You know, many people will have heard of Rosa Parks and will have assumed that she was some sort of powerful lady who stood up to a busload of passengers. But when she died in 2005 at the age of 92, the obituaries recall her as a soft-spoken, sweet and small lady. She was timid and shy with the courage of a lion. They had phrases like radical humility and quiet fortitude. Loud people don't always change the world. People that choose when to speak do. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother in John 6, spoke up, it said, verse 8. This is his moment. John 6, verse 9, his one verse. He says this, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and fishes. That's what he said. That was his moment. But then he carries on, unfortunately. He says, but what good is that with this huge crowd? <laughs> he was doing so well. You don't have to say much in life, but you do have to know when to say things, when to speak up, when to actually get your voice heard. You know, I've been frustrated this week with the government's decision to close the door to our nation by the time we hit 350 refugee children into our nation. I think it's, it, it's insane that a nation with our humanitarian background would even cap our caring of anyone in need, that we'd even put a number on it. And it's horrendous. And I've, I've got myself all over sort of social media and talking to friends. And there's a charity called Home for Good. And Krish Kandai is coming to speak here actually in May, who's doing incredible work amongst adoption and fostering, but is getting involved with this child refugee stuff. And this week we had our local MP, Caroline Noakes, came to visit the uh, Freedom Centre to visit the food bank drop-in particularly. But I hijacked the meeting. And I said, Miss Noakes, while you're here, this is terrible. What are you doing about this? What can we do? How can we change things? Because we need to have a voice. We need to speak out for those that can't speak for themselves. And sometimes we have to choose our moments to say, what is the thing that I should be speaking about? When should I be speaking? What should we be raising our voice to say? That's what we should be doing. So I ask that question, what are you speaking about? Or what are you giving permission to by staying silent? Sometimes by not saying anything, we're actually saying a very great deal. Know when to speak. Make it count. James, the writer in the Bible, says this. Um, after talking a lot about the power of the tongue, James 1.19 said, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And lastly, my, my final thought for you this morning from the, from the uh, disciple of Andrew is this. Let's create space. For the crazy. And you're like, go, still, I, I, Andrew's not like a crazy guy. We're getting the impression of this introverted, quiet, thoughtful. Um, but I, I want to put to you that we need to create space for the crazy. 
Now, hear, hear me out here before you start like walking out and leaving church for the. But listen, can I put it to you that normal isn't working? We've done church for two thousand years. Most churches in our nation are losing numbers. Most churches are an aging community that are struggling to find families, children, young people. I'm glad our Freedom Church, our Freedom Kids, and our Freedom Youth are flourishing. It's a sign of health. But that is not the story for most churches. Listen, normal isn't working. We have to try something different. Einstein said the definition of insanity is trying to do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. There's no point in trying to pretend to carry on being the church and doing the same thing and just hoping one day something might just happen and change things. We've got to create space for crazy. Listen, Andrew was a sensible guy, but he tried something crazy. Adventure is all about doing something you've never done before. That's adventurous. It may be something really quite simple, but it's something you've never done. It's an adventure that you're going on. And we need to create space for crazy ideas if we want to see God move in power in our church. Listen, a good human idea stops God's power from happening. If the disciples had got together and clubbed all their money and said, you know what, we're all going to put a bit of the money in the pot and we're going to raise the money and we're going to go and get some food from the local bakers and we'll feed the 5,000 people, the men and all their wives and kids. That would be a good human idea. But Andrew spoke up in John 6, 9 and said, I've got this boy here with a packed lunch. It's not much, but, but Jesus, what could you do with what I've got? It's, it's crazy. It makes no sense. I know it will never feed all these people, but Jesus, what could you do with what we've got? Because Andrew created the space for the crazy. It was a foolish idea. See, I've got this theory, and you're worrying now about all my theories that I pick out the Bible that aren't actually spoken on the Bible pages. But here's my theory. In 5,000 people and sitting on that hillside with all their women and children, someone else surely had a packed lunch. I mean, it's just a lucky guess. But somebody went, you know what we could probably do with taking a few Kit Kats with us? Somebody did. But here's the thing, people. When you become an adult, you stop thinking about doing crazy things. And so I bet there were people in that crowd who had a packed lunch. Well, you know what? That would be a foolish idea to suggest that my packed lunch could do anything. The crowd's too big. My offering's too small. So I'll pretend I haven't got a packed lunch. Or I'll eat it while no one's looking. That's what adults do. You, you watch small children and their creative ideas and their foolish ideas and their crazy ideas. And they try things they probably shouldn't try. That we as adults go, yeah, I tried that once. Got hurt. Not doing that again. And, and they sat on what they had. They went, Jesus can never use what I've got. And we've got to create some space for crazy. Listen, we talked about getting a building in a home for Freedom Church here in Romsey. That's a crazy idea. It's a crazy idea because a church our size to raise the money we need to buy a building, to buy the land, to buy the resources, to do something for generations to come is a huge, huge problem for us. Why? Because we haven't got much money, there is no land, I can't find a building, God's going to have to come and do something. What it needs is you and I to bring our crazy ideas and say, I've only got this. All I've got, I know it's not enough. I know it won't do anything. But God, if I give you what I've got, will you do something that will blow our minds? Listen, this building story will be a miracle story, I'm telling you. It's going to be a miracle story that we will tell our kids and our grandkids and we'll say, you know what? I was part of something, it was a miracle. It should never have happened. But God went ahead of us and did something. Why? Because we took our packed lunches. We took what we had, our contribution, our resource. We, I've just got this. 
I've just got this, but Jesus, if I give it to you, what would you do with it? We've got to create space for crazy. That's what Andrew did. He went, I've got it. All I've got is this boy with a packed lunch. It's a foolish idea. I probably shouldn't have done it. I'm a bit embarrassed I've even spoken out. What are you sitting on that you need to be offering? What have you got that Jesus could do incredible things with if only you offered them to him? We've got to create space for some crazy ideas because normal isn't working. The truth is, nothing you bring will ever be enough. Nothing you bring or I could bring will ever be enough. Jesus is never going to go, wow, I'm impressed by that. That's an amazing packed lunch you brought. That's like a whole, that's like a, you know, that's, that's a banquet in a basket. That'll easily feed everybody here. Whatever we bring will never be enough. But all we're asked to do is bring what we have. If we can learn to give the little we have to Jesus, however crazy it might seem, and see what he might do to turn our little into excessive abundance. That's what he did. Why did Jesus turn a packed lunch into 12 baskets of litter? Think about it. That's a nutty story. Because Jesus is the God of more than enough. He can take our small offering and turn something incredible just through the power of Jesus Christ himself. We need to get our crazy ideas out on the table to give them to Jesus and to get out of the way and watch the limitless power of God do something incredible with our offering. Let's get the band up on the stage, shall we? Almost bring things to an end. I just want to say to each one of us here that God is interested in you and your family. And he says, come, follow me. Come be part of this band of brothers. Come and join in. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you feel qualified, or you feel left out, you are welcome. God is interested in you. God says, come, follow me. I want to say, get involved, join a team, participate in the life of the church. Listen, our, our church community is not here just to attend on a Sunday. It's to participate in the lives of one another as we go on an adventure together. It will be so much more fun doing this together than by ourselves. And let's point people to Jesus. Point me to. I want to say, if you're sitting here today and you don't know who Jesus is, if you don't have a relationship with him, and you say, oh, I'd love to meet this guy you've talked about, this leader of this band of brothers, then please come and speak to me. We've got a ministry team that will be down here um, at the end of the meeting. If you want someone to pray with you and introduce you to Jesus, I've got a queue of people that would love to do that for you. Do come make yourselves known to us. And let's find our voice, choose our moment to speak, and make it heard and creating space for the crazy. Let's stand up, shall we, and pray. Ministry team, if you want to come to the front, that'd be great for those who want to respond. Almost the time of our time together. Lord, I want to thank you for your followers. I thank you for Simon, Peter, particularly Andrew, we've talked about today briefly. I want to thank you for their willingness to follow you. That they just dropped their nets and they said, yep, we're up for this. You call, we go. Lord, may we be like those disciples that when you call us, we respond and we say, yes, I'm here. I've only got a small offering, a small contribution, but if you can take this crazy idea, God, and turn something amazing, I'm willing to be part of that. Lord, help us have that childlike faith again. Help us to choose our moments, to find the God moment in every conversation we pray. Lord, we want to be a band of brothers here at Freedom Church, a sense of community and belonging and participation. The people around our town will say, what is going on? Who are all these people who call themselves Freedom Church? I want to be part of that community. I want to join in that band of brothers. 
Lord, help us to bring our crazy ideas, our foolish offerings. Lord, I'm excited what you can do with a few crazy people. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. God bless you guys. I hope that's been helpful to you. We've got some more um, teaching on this to come. But remember, a shared adventure is a better adventure. Is that right? A shared adventure is a better adventure. The ministry team are ready for you. Come queuing up now. Jim leads in a final song. That'd be great. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk. Thank you for listening.